Welcome to the Business Extra. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, the National's Assistant Editor-in-Chief. We're here at Adipec, and in a moment, I'm going to talk to Amos Hochstein, who's the US Special Envoy and Presidential Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. Before we do that, if you like this show, subscribe. If you're on YouTube, ring that bell. Well, with me is Amos Hogstein, the U.S. Special Envoy and Presidential Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. Thank you so much for being with us. It's fantastic to be here. I'm so happy to be here. It's good to talk to you. There's a lot to talk about. We've got limited time, but I want to start with something perhaps more emotive. So last week, you were there uh, in your role to facilitate the landmark maritime border deal between Israel and Lebanon that can hopefully presage the sort of production of gas in Lebanon, which is very important for their economy. But I want to ask you, how did it feel that since you've been dealing with the Eastern Mediterranean, even back under the Obama administration, and now you're back doing this, how did it feel to, to be in that moment when, the, when that deal was signed? I'll tell you that um, it was really emotional, actually. Um, I started working on the concept of East Med when people weren't really talking about the East Med, and back in 2011, and really seeing that the energy developments, offshore Israel, offshore Egypt, offshore Cyprus, were really an opportunity for not just energy, but for broader integration of the region into itself. And doing that through physical integration, building pipelines, building opportunities. And I really believed in it. And, the, and, and we were able to do so much. And it transformed the Israel-Egypt relationship. It transformed the Israel-Cyprus and Israel-Greece relationship. It really had massive implications. It even had unbelievable impact on the Jordanian economy. But the one thing that was never going to happen is Lebanon joining the rest of the East Med. Because it could not start production because no company wanted to come to a place that was so unstable when it, with its relationship with Israel. So being able to be there in that tent with the delegations there and bringing to an end the, the, the dispute over the maritime was remarkable. And uh, it just felt like this is what I think the United States role can be and should be in the region. It, it's, it was an interesting example of energy being an area in which two countries that didn't have relations could find some kind of agreement. But that isn't always the case with energy. It tends to, it tends to be binary. Either it's something that two countries can partner on, for example, the UAE and the US, or it could be something that divides countries, like, for example, what's happening with Russia and Europe as well. So as a long-seasoned energy diplomat, what's, what's your view on, on what energy can do in terms of, of countries? Well, I think you got it right. You said it exactly right. Often, more often than not, people think of energy as tools of war, tools of conflict, or not even that extreme, but tools of coercion, leverage. If I sell to you, I own you. And that has been the case in Europe, in Asia, South China Sea, etc., and in the Middle East. So turning the tables is what I've been really trying to do for 10 years, 11 years now, of working to see how do we do it the other way around. If it could be a tool of coercion, why can't it be a tool of cooperation? Because at the end of the day, if you can use it to integrate countries and economies, then you have something to lose. Then when it goes away, oh no, going to conflict now has a cost. I believe at the end of the day, fundamentally, 
if you have stability and security and prosperity, you will not have conflict and everybody benefits. The trick is that they are all self, uh, they're all reinforcing of each other. If you have more stability and security, you have a better shot at having prosperity. And if you have a lot more prosperity, you tend to have more security and stability. So the imbalance between Israel and Lebanon, where Israel has developed so much gas, transformed their economy, and while everybody in the world is paying enormous prices right now, look at Europe right now, paying $50 for natural gas, while Israel is paying four, five, 10%. But Lebanon is not. It's at two hours of electricity per day. Two. I, I walk around here at Adipek in UAE and I get stopped literally every five minutes by somebody saying, hi, I'm Lebanese, thank you for what you've done. And I say, what do you do? And they are managing directors of an investment fund. They are doctors. They're working energy. They're doing all these great things all around the world. The Lebanese have captured the world, but they're not working in Lebanon. And I want to change that. And I think energy here, in this case, will change that, or at least has a great potential to do that. And I think we have to learn from this example of how can we do that in other places as well. So you're here in Abu Dhabi. The Gulf countries are obviously big energy exporters, looking at a whole load of of, of innovative and exciting ideas, particularly the UAE in terms of the future and net zero. What does partnership look like between the US and the UAE when it comes to energy at the moment? Well, we just signed literally an hour ago. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to sign together with uh, Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, uh, the climate envoy and the CEO of ADNOC, um, a really a, a breakthrough agreement between the United States and, and UAE to invest, to catalyze investments of $100 billion towards deployment of 100 gigawatts of renewable energy. What we want to do together is like to recognize the similarities that we have. One, we have committed, in, we both are committing enormous resources. We just passed the largest climate investment legislation in the history of the United States. We want now to catalyze the private sector so we can leverage up whatever the government's going to do and if something's going to take five years, we'd like it to take one year or two years. If something's going to have to be invested now, for a decade from now, let's do it so it's in half that time. The US and UAE are today, have always been allies and have a strong relationship in security, in defense, in economics. But now we are joining forces to lead the world in adaptation and implementation of the climate agenda in renewable energy, electric vehicles, nuclear, cleaner nuclear power that is maybe more deployable, advancing new technologies, accelerating these things. And we're extremely excited. President Biden has been championing increasing investments and His Highness Sheikh Mohammed has been uh, doing the same thing here. I mean, think about it. Of all places in the world, an oil country finds, you know, develops Mazdar and is the first oil country, hydrocarbon country, to understand, don't fight the future. Yeah. Don't fight progress, which was everybody else was doing. Saying, oh my God, we gotta kill renewables because they're gonna, they're gonna kill us. And instead he said, don't kill it, join it. If we led the, if UAE was able to lead the oil and gas era, why can't it lead the next energy era? We're the largest producer of hydrocarbons in the world. We're the largest producer of oil and gas. And we feel the same way. We want to 
use what we have now to make sure we have a strong economy and accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. So UAE and the United States have a lot in common. And the last thing that we have in common that I'll say, we have a people that want to get things done. Stop talking so much, get things done. And that's what I think we can do together. It's interesting because we, 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 I tend to hear medium and long-term discussions about energy, the energy future, energy security, the energy mix, while at the moment a lot of the noise is about the short term. And it's a lot of you know politics and a lot of back and forth about OPEC plus, about Saudi Arabia and the US, about oil prices, about gasoline pumps. And I understand there's a cost of living crisis in parts of the world. Um, it's very important that we get more access to affordable energy. But we're kind of risking making the same mistakes that we did in the last decade. If we don't think medium and long term, we, we kind of, can, can that not be the discussion, for example, between the US and the UAE, the US and Saudi, the US and other countries at the moment? Shouldn't that be the conversation? I think we can swap places right now in this conversation, we'd say the same thing. Um, yes, that's the point. Um, and, and you've said a few important things. Let me break it down a little bit. Our relationship, we have to look at the short term because we're leaders of countries. And we have people who are paying for gasoline today, not in 10 years from now. And they have to take whatever's in their, in their paycheck and decide how to buy medicine and food and gasoline. And when price of gasoline goes up, price of oil goes up, then the price of food goes up. Because we don't live in a farm to table society. We live in a farm to truck to table or sometimes farm to truck to ship to truck to table. That's a lot of gasoline and diesel that is going into the price of your food. So when people walk into a supermarket in London or New York or Dubai or anywhere around the world, they are paying in there when they're buying pasta or bread or milk or vegetables, they're paying for a barrel of oil. That's just a reality. So we have to do whatever we can. And President Biden yesterday gave a speech and said, companies need to invest today in oil and gas. They need to invest in more production. They're having record profits while people are suffering. Now the record profits are because we have a war and we're coming out of COVID, so prices are really high. But we, we don't want them to not make a profit, make the profit, but invest in more oil and gas. But while you're doing that, while the companies are investing in oil and gas, we have to invest far more in bringing about the future. You said something else really important. You talked about not repeating the mistakes of the past. And you said repeating the mistake of the past is short-term thinking. Now, part of that is also, how did we get into this OPEC and other OPEC plus and all these other things? What happens is when you have a small number of countries that are producers and you have a less diversified system. What's happening today for renewables is not to think about just today as far as money, but if I think about batteries and solar and wind, I think, okay, where is all that coming from? Who owns it? Who makes it? How is it made? A battery has things in it. It has cobalt and copper and graphite and nickel. Where is that coming from? Is it diversified? And the answer is no, it's not diversified. So we need to get together and start thinking about how do we, who's mining all this stuff? Are they mining it cleanly? Do we want a world that has clean energy that comes from dirty sources? Do I want the cobalt to be mined in a dirty mine and then goes to a processing facility that's using coal? What's the point? So we need to have all of these things done 
around the world, not just in one place, in the United States, in Australia, in Europe, in Africa, wherever, all over the world. A diversified system so that the renewable energy future, the green energy future, is not the same as a 20th century oil and gas business. Take away the geopolitics of this. Let this be developed everywhere. In the Let the competition be about who can do it the cleanest, healthiest, and most cost efficiently. Last topic, um, and I go back to your, your own career, and you were one of the first to warn about over-dependence for Europe on Russian energy supplies. And very much we've seen what's happened since the invasion of Ukraine. We already, as you said, with COVID, we're already having an energy crisis brewing, but now it's gotten much worse. How do we move forward now, given that this was perhaps avoidable as well? You know, as an energy diplomat now, you don't go around telling everyone in Europe's capitals, I told you so. <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do you focus now going forward to kind of get us through the next six to 12 months? Nobody appreciates it, I told you so, I gotta tell you. Uh, and it doesn't matter. What does it make a difference if I told them or not? The reality is what we have today and how do we move forward? Looking back doesn't matter, except when you wanna learn a lesson. So the first thing we've done, as you said correctly, last September, before the war, I warned, Russia, uh, I warned Europe that Russia was messing around with the gas supply. Turned out it was, be they didn't want to believe it because it's hard to see it. But the storage levels were going up with no gas coming in from Russia, so clearly something was going wrong. But we took action. And we worked together with other countries and we diverted uh, cargoes from other markets to Europe to bring up the storage. That allowed us to get through last winter. This summer, we flooded Europe with LNG and pipeline, non-Russian pipeline gas and filled the storage levels to above 90%, which is critical. Now it's not enough. We're now at the mercy of God. If there's a, an average winter or a very cold winter, it's a very cold winter, we're gonna have a hard time. So there's no escaping that. We're gonna do everything we can. President Biden and President and European President van der Leyen signed an agreement on March 25, where we, the United States, said that we would expand our LNG exports to Europe by 15 billion cubic meters. We've exceeded that. We've done over 2022 BCM. So we're doing everything we can. But we can't simply replace all the Russian gas. What we really want is for war to end. Yep. What we really want is for Russia to take the troops out of Ukraine, live and build its own economy in its own country, and let Ukraine build its economy in its own country. I can't even believe that in the 21st century we're still talking about invasions into other countries, but here we are. We're gonna do everything we can to support Europe. It's another reminder why we need to diversify our sources, why we need to accelerate. But while we do that, don't replace your singular dependence on Russian gas with your singular dependence on one country for your electric vehicle batteries and for your components for your renewable energy. Learn that lesson today because when I was trying to do it in 2011, 12 to 15, 16, it was already baked in. It, Cold War infrastructure was there and the Russians were using that as the leverage. It was cheaper. I'll save you 30 cents, but look what the cost is. Look what the cost is now. Every country in Europe wishes 
they made a quarter, a fraction of the investment they're making now just to keep Ukraine safe in infrastructure so that they don't have to pay the price of the leverage from Moscow. Amos Hochstein, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the show, please do join us again next time. Thank you. Goodbye.